I wouldn't say like I understand Sistema completely. I don't think anyone ever really does in the, in the sense of like the full depth of it. But the more I understand about it, the more I see similarities of a lot of things that I had been doing while I was growing up, especially in these like Zen Buddhist traditions and mindfulness and everything. This is Glenn Murphy with NC Sistema, and this is Sistema for Life. Michael, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Hi, Glenn. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's been quite a, uh, a build up to this, and I'm excited to finally be able to uh, speak with you and have this opportunity to share uh, yeah. insights on Sistema and, and the work I've been doing. Yeah, it's great. Notoriously difficult to pin down Harvard-educated doctors, I find. <laughs> Finally, just grabbing Sistema well, instructors out of the ether. That's normally a, a bit easier. <laughs> well, so do you want to um, kick off by telling folks a little bit of, um, about who you are, what you do, and what your connection to Sistema is? So I'm a trained physician in occupational medicine. It's a specialty basically focused on employee health and uh, wellness. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was living and based out of Boston uh, for majority of my life up until about a year and a half ago, uh, moved down to Nashville, Tennessee uh, mm-hmm. for a job in, in occupational medicine. Uh, I work at Vanderbilt University uh, Medical Center now. Great. How's that? That must be a bit of a culture shock. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's definitely a change. It's a change of pace, yeah. um, but a welcome one. Nice. Uh, being a, a, a Northeasterner for all my life, it's, it's actually kind of refreshing to be in a different part of the country. Right. Um, so, uh, so my involvement with Sistema, I think that is uh, an interesting story. I mean, all my life I had been really um, interested in various mind-body disciplines. Uh, I grew up in a very uh, Zen uh, Buddhist tradition. Mm. Uh, my mother uh, was one of the uh, really close followers of uh, the Zen master uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. I don't know if you have mm, read any of his books or anything, but he, he's written a lot on uh, Zen mindfulness. Yeah. Um, she actually ended up writing a book with him. So she's a Harvard trained uh, nutritionist. Mm. So she wrote a book with him on mindful eating, mindful life. It's called Savor. Um, Very it's cool. pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, like through that, uh, that was kind of built into the DNA of, of my, uh, kind of young adulthood. I would say though, that mindfulness as a teenager and, and that kind of training really wasn't for me at the time, although it was kind of definitely a big part of our family life. I mm. think probably there's a lot of uh, teenage rebellion going on around that time too. Yeah. So it's kind of fighting it a lot. So, uh, so when so, you say part of family life, does it, did, did you kind of meditate as a group or was it just something that your mother encouraged you to do? Or Yeah. Yeah. We, we would, uh, we would have a kind of family based practice of it and we would go on, you know, week long mindfulness retreats uh, with, uh, with Thich Nhat Hanh and, you know, doing all this kind of, you know, um, uh, uh, daily meditation yeah. uh, routines. Even, um, even as a young kid, you did it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was getting into it in my mid-teens. Okay. Uh, that, that was when it first really, I mean, she, we'd always had a somewhat Buddhist background because, uh, you know, she, she grew up in Hong Kong and very uh, traditional mm. Chinese uh, family. So that was all pretty much built into the structure of family um, belief system. Yeah. Uh, but she didn't really renew like a, a real practice, um, a real dedicated practice until about my mid-teens when, when she got uh, interested uh, in uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's work. Hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I, that was the beginning of understanding the power of breath and even movement to some extent. Uh, there's a lot of moving type meditation stuff in uh, Zen mindfulness as well. 
Like mostly um, mostly walking breathwork or walking. There yeah. there's there's walking. They even introduce uh, some very basic kind of uh, mindful movements, like different kinds of arm movements. Uh, you know things to just recalibrate the body. Yeah. Um, of course, being a very spirited teenager, uh, and perhaps because it was coming from my parents mm. and particularly my mom, I, I, I think I, I pushed away from a lot of that, even though it was, um, in retrospect, a very healthy kind of thing to be, to be promoting. I, I think I was just, there was a lot of resistance internally. Yeah. So I actually ended up finding a way uh, towards initially Chinese martial arts hmm. as a kind of um, an alternative to, for myself, it was more of like a moving mindfulness. And, and I think because of the much more energetic component to it uh, appealed to me more uh, at the time. So, and that so actually... That, sorry. Yeah, good. And that, say, that lasted for quite a while. Um, I, yeah. I did that for uh, more than a decade after that. Okay, from from your teens through to kind of early twenties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it went from teens to uh, all the way through medical school. Yeah, through college and medical school, mm. I trained in multiple different forms of, um, mostly Shaolin based. Uh, traditional Chinese martial arts, uh, like Southern White Crane, mm. some Northern Shaolin styles, uh, Tai Chi, um, different forms of Qigong. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it was quite a, a large breadth of experience uh, back then. Mm. And did you find what you were looking for in those practices? Did you feel like it gave you a, like a valid alternative to the kind of exploring your body yeah. through movement, moving and breathing? I think I think it gave the balance I was looking for at the time, um, but as I progressed more through my medical school uh, career at that time, hmm. I started to become a bit more uh, stressed. Obviously, going to medical school and, and getting through that curriculum and that trajectory can be yeah. very stressful. That'll do it. So, <laughs> <laughs> I found that actually my um, my ability to keep up my practice of martial arts was dwindling. Um, and these, so as you're very familiar already, these traditional arts are very regimented. There's a lot of structure behind them. Yeah. Um, a lot of, uh, and, and towards the end of that time, I've been spending the majority of my time training in a, in a very traditional, uh, Southern Shaolin um, white crane system. Hmm. Uh, and my Sifu then was, I mean, he's very old school. So <laughs> it was, I, I don't, I think it was a combination of, of my, my stress I was experiencing during that time, medical school, and also just having an added structural component to like the practice that that made it difficult for me to kind of uh, find it enjoyable or like, a like way to rigor. unwind anymore. Like riggers yeah, on top of riggers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It, it was just a little, I mean, whereas it would, it was great during the time when I was a younger teen and young adult going through college where I had very relatively little structure. Mm. It was becoming probably something that uh, I could, I couldn't at the time understand how to integrate it into the rest of the things going on in my life. Yeah. So actually that, that started me looking around at different types of martial arts. And the other thing is, as you already know, traditional Asian martial arts, very choreographed, uh, learning. It's learning through patterned, uh, movement recognition, the creative stuff like improvisation. Uh, I mean, it comes, but it comes like much later in your, in your learning once your skill sets are highly evolved. Yeah. Um, and that's particularly true in the, in the especially like these very structured Shaolin systems and whatnot. Um, so I found that that 
part, I, I actually, you know, despite having trained a very long time and was even within the school structure teaching it to other students, I, I found I couldn't use any of it yeah. out of the context of just demonstration or doing drills. Mm. And that bothered me, actually. Yeah. I, I had a kind of big block. I was like, you know, how do you actually use this stuff? And, you know, the answer that they, they gave me which is just keep practicing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> which I understand the answer now, but <laughs> yeah, back then it wasn't, wasn't the, the thing I wanted to hear. Yeah. So I, I looked around at, at, and this is, this is now like, oh, I want to say second year of med school. So I'd say around like 2006 around there maybe. And that's when I started looking around at, alternative systems and other paradigms of training. And back then there wasn't a whole lot of stuff to look at. It was just a lot of like YouTube. Um, and so I started looking around, saw, saw this like interesting stuff on Krav and, you know, like these more kind of like combative based uh, martial art systems. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere along the line came across, you know, a video of uh, Vladimir and, and Michael. And I was just blown away at what I was seeing on video. More, more because what it resembled to me in, in the traditional system, we worked a lot on uh, what would be like analogous to like a, uh, kind of a soft work it's you know basically a lot of sensitivity uh push hands type thing um so that was kind of something a, a concept i was familiar with and i as i was watching these videos i was like wow this is like very uh similar to a lot of like internal type martial arts i had i had done before yeah but in a very different context and applied very differently so I was blown away by that. And this is, you know, 2006 or so, somewhere around there. Uh, but of course, at the time, there was really no one to train with in that area. I think there was a school in Boston. Hmm. Um, uh, I forget his name. Arthur Sanat. I don't know if, if you remember him. <laughs> That's such a coincidence. <laughs> he's just he's here in Durham this week. And he's uh so Is he's he? he's actually okay. at my school in about an hour and a half. He's teaching a four hour seminar at my school. Okay, <laughs> that's really I oh, hadn't I hadn't heard of him until so, a week ago. So that's what a coincidence. Really, that's yeah. amazing. So, okay, yeah. okay. So he he had a school in Boston, but by the time I was interested in looking, I couldn't. I, I think he may have stopped teaching. Yeah. So i think he stopped i think he stopped teaching systema anyway i think he's been teaching xing yi and some other stuff like that but he hasn't taught systema oh, okay. for like 10 years okay that explains it yeah. that explains it so um so then that kind of took a a back burner and i especially well, then medical school got really busy because then rotations and then trying to figure out what to do for residency and that was a total other stress and mm. so i so this interest you know, I'd heard about at this point, Sistema, and I was interested and saw some interesting stuff about around it, but I, um, I, I didn't actually take that step and, you know, find something that was anywhere nearby or travel to any seminars to go, uh, train. Yeah. And that didn't happen until probably, uh, about eight years ago around, I think it was 2011, 2012, something like that. Hmm. Um, I finally had some time, more flexible time in my, in my life that I could uh, travel a little further, you know, for to basically drive down from Boston to visit the group in Providence, uh, Sasha Komakar's group, hmm. uh, the Rhode Island school. Yeah. And train there. Actually, once I started training uh, with them, uh, immediately I was like, this is what I've been looking for. And, you know, I, as soon as I started training there, I started going, uh, visiting, um, a couple seminars, uh, with Vladimir, then traveling up to headquarters and 
yeah and getting like the full experience after that gotcha which is probably uh, where, I, where we met probably right i think i met you at a couple of seminars yes, here and there up at hq yes. yeah yep mm. yep even some of the you know the last times uh, that um actually the last time that vladimir was back in the u.s i think i may have seen you there oh really was it one uh, uh like down in it was, Charlotte it was or a something? while ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was in, I think New York was. Oh, okay. Might have been. One. Yeah. Or Florida. Or for, it might have been Florida. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Tampa. So, yeah. He did one right, there in Tampa. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Parameters so, of power down in Tampa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, so that's the kind of long answer to your question. Gotcha. Great. So, um, so it's kind of a, a swooping path from. Uh, kind of mind body indoctrination in a way <laughs> to teenage rebellion, yeah, yeah. teenage rebellion, and then eventually what? working your way back towards right, the mind exactly. body. <laughs> working, working all the way back to exactly where I started. And the funny part is, is that now that I have a much, uh, I wouldn't say like I understand Systema completely. I don't think anyone ever really does in the, right. in the sense of like the full depth of it. Yeah. Um, but the more I understand about it, the more I see the relevance and similarities of a lot of things that I had uh, been doing while I was growing up, especially in these like Zen Buddhist traditions and mindfulness and everything. Yeah. And I look back and I'm like, wow, that's, uh, that's, there's that principle there. Oh, yeah. there's that mechanism there. Yeah, uh, phenomenon's happening. Yeah, we've got, we've got one of our students, Gabe Stern. He used to be um like literally like a Zen monk. You know, he was uh, he 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 trained daily for years. And um, oh wow, that's like come out of it. And so yeah. he's like he's he's said he's fascinated, especially in the last kind of five years, that where the emphasis mm -hmm. has been a lot more on understanding your internal state. I mean, the emphasis that's coming down the pipe from Vladimir and Michael, right? Um, um, right, on sensing right. your internal state, understanding not just breathing to kind of power movement, but using breathing to understand your emotions and how you react to things and what your tendencies are and things like that and um he's he's like yeah it's it's funny it's, it's, it's almost cute how much of the language is almost exactly the same as as things that i kind of walked away mm -hmm. from when i was in zen and here i am again doing these things <laughs> right. so it kind of made it, it's kind of yeah you should probably have a chat with him it'd be kind of fun but yeah and the other thing yeah, was edgar absolutely. school said that he was in japan with michael um on one of his many seminars over there and a zen master came to a fairly renowned zen master came to one of Michael's seminars and he'd never done Sistema before. He was just intrigued and he started training and he said to Michael, this is Zen like that. And uh, Michael's like, yeah, yeah, it is pretty much a Zen in the body <laughs> like that way. And oh, is that uh, what he said? Yeah, yeah he said, it. yeah. Michael yeah. said, yeah, yeah, it is. And, uh, and apparently um, Eggers was like, it was fascinating because the guy understood exactly what Sistema was doing like emotionally, but he, he couldn't get his body to do anything, obviously, that was because <laughs> he just hadn't trained his body to do half of right. the other things, but he absorbed them in different ways. But, but I found yeah. that when I've been training people who have a like a especially a deep like Chinese internal martial arts background, or I have one um, older student, he's just a private student, he comes in uh, once a week and just trains like one to one, and he'll drop into some other classes sometimes, but he's like a lifelong meditator, like lots of retreats, he's training for like four decades, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and it's really interesting that, that he picks things up that other people find really difficult from beginners, you know, that, um, and he has trouble with some of the bodily stuff, you know, um, mm -hmm. but, he, but mm -hmm. it, it's funny how that preparation, you know, the mental preparation prepares you for things that people really have trouble grasping in Sistema, I think, a lot of the time. Um, even very physically gifted athletes have trouble getting, getting that stuff. And sometimes actually their bodies and their physical gifts can work against them. You know, they don't want to let go right. of them and try and let anything else. They don't want to see the subtler patterns playing out underneath, but it's uh, it's been interesting for me to teach him because he he learns at a different pace. It's it's not faster, not slower, just different. You know. Mm, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so when did your um fascination with kind of the mind body disciplines and martial arts when did that start creeping over into your into your into professional work? work? Yeah, into, into like writing work. research yeah. papers. I've read a couple of papers that you've written about the autonomic nervous system, the role of stress, yes. and flow state, things like that. How did yeah. how did that begin? So. Backing up a little bit into my medical school um, time and and looking into what I was going to specialize in after that in terms of residency training, mm. I actually um, I was very kind of like a prototypical medical student. I want you know I just wanted the best possible residency, you know the most hardcore competitive thing I could apply for. Mm -hmm. Uh, and at that time, 
in my head, that was plastic surgery. So I actually uh, got into a plastic surgery residency program mm. uh, after medical school. And it's a six-year program to train to become a uh, plastic surgeon. Mm. And I did about three years of it. And yeah. that after that, I was I needed a break. I think I was starting to develop my own um, experience of burnout and yeah. uh, needing to just take a step back and and see what uh, what I really wanted to do and you know what I actually enjoyed doing. Yeah, and it was actually during that break during residence that's when I actually found the opportunity to explore Sistema. Mm. It was around that time. Gotcha. Um, so at that point, uh, you know, I, I got really into doing uh, a lot of research. It was still plastic surgery related. It was in wound healing, mm. um, uh, looking at burn uh, wounds, looking at novel ways of, of imaging uh, burn and radiation exposure. Mm. Um, but what it taught me there, and I did that for actually almost three years. And what basically happened then is I got the research bug and I realized I really loved the research process, hmm. uh, you know, finding a question to answer and figuring out how to answer it. Um, and basically at that point, then I had to figure out you know, after three years of research, what was I going to do with the rest of my life? Mm. Um, was I going to go back to plastics? And at that point, it didn't really seem like that was going to be where my interest uh, was going to lie. Kind of grew beyond so, that. Yeah, it grew beyond that scope. Mm. Uh, and so I started thinking more broadly uh, about what different opportunities there could be. And, and something that just popped up on my radar was this subspecialty of preventative medicine called uh, occupational medicine. Yeah. It's actually occupational environmental medicine. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's interesting about it was that uh, as part of the residency training program, it's a two-year program, uh, you get your master's in public health. So you actually learn how the research methodology, uh, especially from an epidemiologic uh, perspective sure. yeah and so uh, and then on top of that you also understand um, the impact of the environment on health etc and and those pieces of of course a piece of that also is is stress as a possible component of exposure yeah. so um i ended up at the uh, harvard program for occupational medicine there and got the uh, master's of public health from the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Yeah. And so, uh, so there, it was there uh, that I basically was, had the opportunity because as part of the residency program, you're supposed to have some novel research. So uh, I won this small award uh, to to basically go ahead and uh, look at uh, what you the studies you had mentioned earlier, mm. looking at uh, the autonomic system and how that is related to these mind body components. Gotcha. And so basically, I, I <laughs> kind of selfishly, in some ways, um, I was you know I found all I found this this almost uh, magical incredible training methodology and system and i and uh i was just basically fascinated and and looking at ways that this could actually be explained and looking for an excuse to study it way <laughs> right exactly and, i mean and yeah and it worked out because people are interested in that so yeah um, great so just out of interest were you um so you were were you training teaching martial arts at this point as well at the same time mm -hmm. currently okay right so right. some crossover yeah, so i actually yeah so i during that time uh that i'd started training at the rhode island school uh with sasha's group 
few years after that, I started a group in Boston mm. and basically just and just kept teaching from there. Right. Um, that group is still around up there in Boston uh, since cool. I moved down to Tennessee. But um, but yeah, it was. I actually found that, and you probably know this very well already. But after starting to teach it, it was that's when like the the uh, the depth of knowledge and kind of thinking about it in a in a different, deeper way um, really started coming up. Yeah, it has to, right? Because you can't yeah. just show up and do the work in a way. <laughs> you have to show up in order to set a, a framework for other people to do the work, right? And you have yeah, to kind of know vaguely where it's going and you have to know, right. it, be- know it well enough to be able to explain it to somebody else, you know? But, exactly. And it was yeah. the, the explanation part that really started to get me to really look at why things are happening the way, and not just why things were happening the way we're doing it, but why we're doing it that way. Because gotcha. there's not a whole lot of explanation uh, for some of the things that we do hmm. other than, you know, if you, for example, like when Vladimir talks about, you know, um, you know, breathing in through nose, out through mouth at a certain uh, count, right? Whether it's like five five heartbeats in five heartbeats out five seconds in five sure. seconds like out cadence like cadence thing. management right yeah mm. exactly like why are we doing that mm. that specific way mm. um and so that that was the beginning of me starting to really wonder about is there a background to this yeah. that could be explained in a, a scientific way gotcha or is it even a background generally like where where did any of this come from i think that yeah. was a bigger question too gotcha yeah because there's a mixer mixture of stories that you hear right and bits of right. <laughs> things put together right. some people like start spinning legends some of it, that they'll yes. point to specific resources and it's kind of difficult because of you know old pre-soviet russia it's hard to you know so, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm reminded of when my sister started doing genealogy for our family she just got really into it a few years ago and on the one side, it was my mother's family who had basically been in London for like a thousand years, like since the Norman conquest. They just kind of lived <laughs> in and around North London. And uh, so yeah. she had all these birth, deaths, and marriage certificates going back through all the centuries. Uh, and my dad's family were basically Irish for, you know, his his mother came over from Ireland and uh, he was born in England. And uh, and when she started tracing back uh, Irish ones, she got back about two generations and then nothing because nobody had birth certificates or like all the churches are burnt down and like, people just didn't really care. So, so it, it was just like went to dead ends on the Irish side. I thought it was kind of funny. So we're like, yeah, it's probably Irish for a few thousand years that way. I know. So it's yeah. kind of it's kind of funny. It's the same kind of thing with Sistema. You, you can go a certain, you can get back to what World War Two maybe or something and then you get bits right, of stuff. Just- from, yeah. And then you're like, yeah, I'm not sure where it goes before this. Right. You know, it's like, yeah. So and there's other things yeah. that look like it. There's a lot of Slavic martial arts, even Polish ones and stuff like that, you know, that seem to have shared elements. But then you're like, well, where did this breathing come from? And where's the other stuff, right, you know? So right. it's, uh, it's very interesting. Okay. So so can you tell us uh, sort of in brief, because uh, not everybody listening to the podcast is a, you know, um, epidemiologically trained um, Harvard position, right. obviously. Um, but a lot of people have interest in, in, the, in the specifics of kind of how these things work. And can you describe briefly what the first and the second studies did? Because some research has been done on things like cadence of breathing, right? The Bitaco mm-hmm. method and mm-hmm. stuff like that, and how that affects the um, the parasympathetic right. nervous system and, and stuff like that as well. But like you specifically studied muscle tension in conjunction mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. breathing, kind of that intense, out, relaxed, pandiculation thing that we do. Um, right. And then also kind of people's perceived level of stress and perceived level of flow, Um in, mm-hmm. in specific mm-hmm. tasks. Can you tell us just in brief kind of what the first and the second study did? Sure. So the, so the first study, uh, well, I should say that I should first uh, qualify it. The studies, they're actually, it was actually just one study, but there were two papers uh, okay. with different focuses that came out from it. Gotcha. Um, now, the first paper was looking at... Um, how rhythmic breathing, such as like the five seconds in, five seconds out, uh, affected the autonomic nervous system and how adding um, a rhythmic muscular tension to that Mm. breathing pattern uh, could further modify or modulate the autonomic system. And was there a significant difference, did you find? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the first paper. So uh, the way it was set up, actually, I'll back up even further. So the reason why I picked this rhythmic breathing is, is I mean, obviously something that's fundamental uh, that we do in Sistema. Um, but as I was researching rhythmic breathing uh, in the literature, um, there was a, a researcher named, uh, let's see, Evgeny uh, Bastillo, who had published uh, a lot on um, rhythmic breathing, hmm. but also interestingly had a separate uh, paper on rhythmic skeletal muscle contraction. Hmm. And basically showing that now he never combined them, but he showed that either of those two things alone modulated uh, what they call the uh, respiratory uh, sinus arrhythmia or RSA, which is marker for parasympathetic activity. So that's basically um, so, so that's how much your heart rate speeds up and slows down between beats, mm -hmm, right? As you breathe mm -hmm. in and breathe out, it exactly. speeds up a little bit as you breathe in, slows down a little bit as you breathe out, right? And that's exactly. a measure of your like vagal tone or how much your sympathetic ner yes. nervous system is activated yeah. versus parasympathetic. Is that right? Right, right. Yeah. Now, a lot of this is is also um, refers back to to Stephen Porges' work, yeah, on on the polyvagal system. So, yeah, which I found um, fascinating. That's a, a that's a, I'm still teasing that apart in my head, like the bits right. that feel relevant and the bits yeah, that don't. And I, yeah. and I, th I thoroughly enjoyed that that podcast. But great, oh yeah, yeah, me too. I think we should talk more about that. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, so basically, he had uh, looked at these two different components and saw that they had an effect on what they call uh, entrainment or building resonance uh, of, of the RSA. Mm. And um, he actually built a whole uh, training kind of biofeedback system around this. Yeah. Uh, and, and coincidentally, this guy, he's, he's obviously Russian, uh, but his work started, I, I believe, in Russia. Mm. Uh, but he published this stuff in like 84. Um, so it's, it's quite a while ago at this point. Yeah. Um, so that got me thinking because you have the rhythmic breathing, you have rhythmic skeletal muscle contraction and, uh, both of the studies were studying it at that particular frequency hmm. that, uh, 0.1 Hertz, which, which is basically a cycle of, um, uh, you know, either five seconds in five seconds out or, yeah. uh, you know, contracting five seconds, five seconds. Right. So, um, so that got me thinking, well, in Sistema, what, what do we do about that involves doing both, right? We integrate both and, uh, kind of synchronize them either like contracting, uh, you know, one arm while breathing in. Sure. Isolating, contracting the other arm, yeah, 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 like sort of the isometric contraction as well. And so I was, I was thinking, well, that's pretty much. If there was a study that could show that the combination of the two hmm. increased the parasympathetic response, yeah, then that would explain why we, why we actually do this. So it's kind of like, it's um, trying, so, so you had the variables already teased out like this, but the breathing works, right. the contraction works. And you're like, I wonder if there's a synergy or a complementary effect. Exactly. Or like that. Yeah, exactly. And that was the first paper. Hi folks, Glenn here. As Systema for Life approaches its 100th episode, I'd like to take a minute to thank everyone who has contributed to the show, all our listeners, and to everyone who's offered requests, encouragement, and feedback along the way. I also need to ask a quick favor. We have already enjoyed two years of high-quality interviews, insights, and ideas on Systema for Life. We'd like to keep the show going, and we want to keep it open to all, but we need your help to do it. It takes time, effort, and more than little cash to produce a podcast, more than two grand a year at current hosting and production rates. We have no paid advertising, and we do it all off our own backs, with help from listeners and generous supporters like you. 
So if you're a fan of Systema for Life and you get real value from the ideas and the conversations we create, then please take a few minutes now to subscribe at www.ncsystema.com support. Support at whatever level you feel like you can afford. Even $3 or $5 a month is a help. Think of it as buying us a beer or a cup of coffee once a month for our travels. So visit ncsystema.com support and use the buttons on the page to select your preferred monthly or annual support level. You'll receive a confirmation on sign up and you can cancel at any time. Your support really does help ensure the survival of the show. With gratitude, thank you very much. So basically the study was set up, uh, had a bunch of stressed out grad students uh, and they would come in um, and I would basically have them either do uh, breathing alone, like the cyclical uh, breathing, five seconds in, five seconds out, hmm. or have them do a um, uh, contraction task, which was flexing or contracting left arm five seconds, right, uh, then relaxing and then contracting the right arm mm-hmm. and then alternating that way. Yeah. Or they did that combined uh, task, which was matching it with synchronizing it with breath and contraction. Hmm. And then there was a neutral task, which was just um, reading like uh, an article. Okay. No and specific so, focus on breathing or contraction. They're just taking some time out, yeah, like the same amount of just, time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. And they didn't even as part of the um as part of the protocol, I don't yeah, they didn't they weren't even aware of the other groups of, of what they would be doing. So they weren't mm. like inadvertently trying to do that. Okay. They were just focused on reading. Yeah. So having randomized these participants then had them uh, so they did the task for five minutes and then they would take what would be called a, a Stroop test. It's, it's basically a cognitive dissonance task mm. where um, words would be uh, put up on like, for example, uh, the word blue would come up on the screen, mm-hmm. but the color of it would be in red. Right. Right. And the task would be to um, press the um, the uh, letter of the color mm-hmm. uh, that you see. Yeah. Not the word. Right. Gotcha. That, that kind yeah. of that kind of thing. So you'd have some that are matching, some that are incongruent, et cetera. So, yeah. Um, so it's just a so design of a test that tends to fail when people get stressed out. Is that fair enough? Like a. Like that. Uh, it was so yeah it was designed to actually be like a mild stressor okay like a test yeah. stress so just i've, to, I've heard just another, another one where you get people like count backwards from 100 multiplying mm-hmm. like exactly. subtracting exactly. 17s yeah. or something like that and yeah. it's really difficult right <laughs> yeah yes so mm. so that was another one that i looked at uh in the study design uh but just for ease of use um i went with the stroop color test mm. and so what uh what all of these tests do, including the one you described, it, basically it's looking at executive task function mm. and just our our daily uh, cognitive mind ability to to problem solve. Yeah. So um, what they would do is after being preconditioned in one of those four groups, then they would take this task, and I was measuring their heart rate variability all throughout this. So yeah. with heart rate variability, you can see different components of the sympathetic uh, uh, system and also the parasympathetic system mm. and looked at uh, what their response was during the actual stressor, during yeah. the task itself, because they, they did the test for about, I think it was five minutes. So you measured the HRV um, in, in real time. You had them like hooked up with chest devices or something and you would just kind of mm-hmm. look at the panel. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Mm. And so I was getting their their heart data um, in real time, and uh, looked at then went back and looked at the different groups and how they compare. Mm. So uh, the interesting part was so when you're just looking at the groups, like the different task groups, so you had breathing alone, yeah, the rhythmic breathing alone. Um, 
skeletal muscle contraction group and then that uh, synchronized group. Yeah. And of course, the control neutral group. Hmm. So in terms of the results, in terms of actual um, uh, parasympathetic activation, hmm. uh, and we're, we're talking about like activation. So, so uh, it's not, so all of them were activated during the entrainment process of doing it for five minutes. What yeah. I was interested in looking at as the residual effect after they stopped. Gotcha. In that, in that uh, carryover time when they were doing the test. Yeah. Because when they're doing the test, they weren't, they weren't doing that active kind of entrainment task anymore. Yeah. Um, so what we found was during that uh, time that they're getting the stressor, that uh, the cyclical breathing group was really not different uh, than the control group. Hmm. Um, the skeletal muscle contraction group actually had a, a significantly higher um, activation hmm. uh, than than control. That's interesting. But the highest, the highest was the combined. Both together. So there was a synergy, like a demonstrable synergy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's really interesting. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting that muscle contraction alone, like in the absence of breath work, essentially uh, had that effect or had a significant effect. That's a that says something about how much of how we perceive stress is like from the neck down, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, I found it interesting that you said that, um, so it was left side, right side arm contractions. So you always did that in the effort to keep it very simple and simply measurable. Yes. Like, Because there's an something that occurs to me just from a Systema viewpoint and stuff like that is that when you start to um, isolate and contract just certain areas of the body, right, that you can actually redirect blood flow and blood pressure that way a little bit. And in some ways, so those upper body contractions would seem to redeflect redirect blood flow upwards and just kind of, you know, drive uh, blood supply yeah. towards the brain. So that, that might increase the cognitive effect just as, as a random, as a, you know, total supposition right. on how some of that might work. But I wonder whether it would be the same if they just did leg contractions, for example. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, uh, the original study uh, that looked at just rhythmic skeletal muscle contraction alone had different combinations. Mm. Uh, they had like a lower body versus upper body. And then I think it was even like you described, um, even a left leg versus right leg or something like that. Yeah. Um, but that's where that they identified that it, as you actually described it, is the alteration, most likely the alterations in blood pressure mm. that are causing, triggering that, that similar uh, increase in, in the respiratory uh, sinus arrhythmia. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. So so then, how did that? Um, so you said the second paper that came out of it. Um, one thing that I read in there is that right. you you kind of got that U curve that um, what's his name again? Yes. Mihaly Mihaly always can't pronounce his last name. The guy who did all the study on yeah. flow, right? So it yeah. seemed like to yeah. replicate Mihaly. what he found about the um, the ideal state is not super relaxed, and nor is it obviously super stressed out into the sympathetic. It's like right. somewhere kind of in between, where you've got some mild sympathetic um, activation. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, Mihai Chikmensihai, I mean, very interesting theories that he had on, on flow. Yeah. Um, and so I put a flow measuring instrument, uh, to see what their self, each participant's self-reported experience was immediately after they did that Stroop test. And how do you how do so, you measure subjective flow? How's the uh, how do you do that? Yeah, so so there's a a standardized questionnaire that's been okay basically yeah. validated uh, to look at the the you know the eight different features of flow. Yeah, um, and uh, it's it's very brief. I can't remember how many questions it is, but it's like under 20, 20 questions. And so is it like retroactive? Like how, how much e mm -hmm. ease did you find or do you know, things like that is that you ask them right, right after? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's, it's immediately after the, uh, the task was given. Yeah. And, um, uh, it's just a self-reported, you know, their experience. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, that's probably the closest that, that we can get to any kind of real, objective measurement of something that's 
as subjective as flow. Yeah, so the game you play um, with psychology, right? I do. <laughs> right. I do. I do the same thing. I do these, uh, you know, the stress stress retreats and things like that with my program, and uh, we do like a modified symptoms of stress inventory test beforehand, and they you know, like yeah. a questionnaire to so that they can kind of subjectively see you know, report how stressed out they are before and after. And we do and we do HRV measurement as well. But what I find is heart rate variability is if you're not measuring it in real time, there's so much capacity for people to mess it up. You yeah. know, like if you leave well, them to their, themselves and they measure it, sometimes they sit down and do it. Sometimes they're standing up. Right. Sometimes they do it after they've right, been right. for a walk. And it doesn't take very much yeah. to just completely throw it to the wind. You know? it's, it's, oh, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. you got to be like in a lab, study, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It has to be done under very controlled reproducible conditions to yeah at least reproducible across all the participants that you're looking at yeah in order to have some comparison and even then you've got to throw yeah. some hardcore statistical software at it just to flatten out all of the oh, yeah. <laughs> outliers yeah. and noise yeah. and things like that it's a we've yeah. we found that in yeah. the study i'm doing with duke so uh it's a but yeah interesting yeah. so yeah. the other thing i noticed in there that, um i think it was in there just in the methodology you kind of said that you had all male participants um is that because mm -hmm. just the heart rate variability again is difficult to measure right. in women because it goes up and down right. with like hormone levels more or is, is there something yeah. else to that or? so yeah yeah that's exactly that's exactly it okay uh, because this was a smaller study um only 48 uh participants um so we we wanted to make sure that we had enough power to see any differences and to limit any variability that that we could sure. so yeah so nobody uh, with a heart condition and nobody <laughs> right exactly so yeah. so a lot of there were a lot of exclusions including um uh gender as being one because mm. there was the possibility that's reported in the literature as uh at least comparing men and women that the hormone uh differences may be uh cause it may change the interpretation or the the balance of the autonomic system that's in interesting a way. that's just a i didn't actually know that even having studied a bit of hrv and the factors that go into it that was never yeah. really um made clear to me and that's really interesting now because we're in the study that we just did um with a again a pretty small um group there was some discrepancy in how people responded to the kind of training that i gave them and like some people got markedly better over time when they yeah. measured hrv over three months and 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 some people actually decreased like a little bit, like more people got better, but there was a few that decreased. And I've never actually asked the question, was it men or women? So that's really interesting. <laughs> so that'll yeah, be a, yeah. a, a thing I need to go back there. And I just didn't do, yeah. you know, in, in the name of gender equality, I just didn't care, you know, right. but, but now I kind of do. So I'm going <laughs> to go back yeah. and see it. Well, I yeah. mean, if you stratify between men and women, you might see uh, actual differences within those groups. Yeah. If you cut it apart. Mm. Um, okay, that's one I'm passing on to the uh, researchers at Duke now. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> cool, great. So, um, so how, um, so you've you've had those results. Are you planning to do more kind of studies of aspects of systemic methodology this way, or is it, this was did it sate your appetite temporarily for looking into how it works? So I'm at an interesting point in my career at this at this time. So I'm super interested in all of this work still. Mm. Um, and I think as it relates to teaching Sistema and, and uh, you know, furthering that kind of experience, um, I think it will continue in, in that way. But professionally, it's, it's a little bit different because my work now is very centered uh, on clinical uh, practice and and running, you know, an op operational uh, employee health clinic within like a medical center. Yeah. So there's not a lot of focus uh, at all at this point in doing research academically. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I guess the the short answer is the research is probably on hold for right now, like further any further projects. Mm. Um, at least within an academic setting. Gotcha. Um, but I, I definitely still have a very active curiosity in continuing understanding uh, what's going on because a lot of this stuff actually is just the tip of the iceberg, I think. I think the autonomic system is one component of, that we can measure yeah. of things that are being affected by things like breathing and skeletal muscle contraction. 
Yeah. But as you know, Sistema is so much more than that. Yeah. It's so much deeper. That's just like a very thin slice of what's going on. Yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, I think that there's just so much, there's a lot more work that can be done. I mean, I was actually, I was fascinated that, uh, in, in the process of doing the background research for all this, um, how, how little there is looking at specific, I and mean, there's a lot on breath. Yeah. As we discussed earlier. Yeah. Um, but there's like very, very little on this, this whole skeletal muscle contraction. I mean, there's a lot of stuff on muscle physiology, Yeah, but not really how it relates to the autonomic system. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it seems to be like a missing link, you know, like something that some mm-hmm. people really haven't delved far into, you know? So, yeah. Cool. So, um, so kind of two questions on this one is, um, the first one is how, how, if at all, has this kind of influenced the way you practice or teach Sistema? Is, is it, has this information influenced the way that you teach at all or do, or do you do it the same or practice or is it the same as it was? Yeah, that, I think that's a really fascinating question. Uh, I think it definitely has influenced how I teach. Mm. Uh, I, I, I definitely explain a bit more into at least what we think the physiology is Yeah, to help give some people a little more background. Cause that's one of the things I had. I mean, that my own curiosity about it is what triggered all this research, but it was also, it wasn't just curiosity is it a little bit of frustration as well mm. for me. I mean, even though it worked, the process, the training process worked, it was like, I just want to know why. Right. Like, yeah. And maybe that's the, you know, the researcher the scientist in part of me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I sympathize. <laughs> but, I sympathize. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but I, I thought that, you know, as I'm, as I'm gaining this, this uh, knowledge now and, and looking at, you know, the research results, um, I just offer it in, in teaching as, uh, you know, another piece that people might appreciate uh, because different people resonate different kind of information, different yeah. kinds of explanation. Yeah. So I just kind of throw it in there and see how, how they respond. Gotcha. Not everyone really wants to hear about all that stuff. No, I found that um, so I, I kind of, sometimes my enthusiasm for kind of finding the parallels and understanding the psychological yeah. neuroscientific underpinnings of what we're doing. I start explaining it and I see some people go, <gasps> they light up and some people are just going blank. Like it's actually detracting right, exactly. from detracting yeah, from their yeah, experience yeah. of doing the thing, you know, like they're, they're thinking right. too much and some people don't need more to think about, you know, yeah, <laughs> they exactly. need less to so, think about. Yeah. 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 So I see it as, as another, you know, having scientific explanations for what we do. Um, I th- I see it as just another teaching tool. Yeah. Um, but it, it's really one of those things where, you know, it's the art of teaching. You have to know when, when to use it, when it's relevant. Yeah. You know, who your audience is. Totally. Yeah. And just kind of judge it from there. Yeah. Um, but, but it's been a very fascinating process to, to be able to even, uh, in the, brief time that I was doing this this research to mm. have it cross over from you know personal interest to something that uh, could be uh, applied professionally yeah uh, that was quite interesting yeah that's always so a joy I, that's always a joy I, when you get to do that right when something yeah, bleeds bleeds from yeah, work to personal life in a healthy way not in a bad way <laughs> right 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 um one additional thing I will say, we didn't talk that much about the uh, second paper analysis on flow. Yeah. But I think one interesting, the most interesting thing for me that came from that, it was a little unexpected, was that this U-shaped performance curve uh, basically was showing that it's a predominantly or majority of the autonomic arousal is the uh, activity is sympathetic mm-hmm. that's um leading to um i should say predisposing to a flow state okay um I, about only 10 to 20 percent of the flow uh variability was mm-hmm. explained by by heart rate variability so mm. uh 
that means that there are many other things, right, that can contribute to yeah. flow that are not being accounted for in the study. You know, personal interest, your mindset, hmm. you know, experience doing the task if they had ever done the task before, those kind of things. Yeah. Performance anxiety. Um, <laughs> performance anxiety, you yeah. know, I mean, um, so it's interesting to see that, like I originally expected, as, especially from other flow research, that it would have been more maybe in the middle zone, yeah. like a classic, like you, maybe, you know, half parasympathetic, half sympathetic yeah. uh, type activity. Yeah. But it definitely seemed to be, uh, not not 100% sympathetic, but yeah, that's but interesting. A high, um, a high arousal. Yeah, was, I've, I've I've read some indicated. other um, papers based, and it's mostly I don't know if it's measuring cognitive flow or kind of state on like perceived flow in a in intellectual task. But in terms of the right. studies they've done on athletes who felt like they were in a flow state physically, right, where they didn't have to think too much and they were just kind of moving and doing their thing and um. And on those, it seemed like there was again that they'd reported that it was it was a like a moderate sympathetic activation, like right, kind of so it's right. kind of the needle is a little bit right of center is where it wanted yeah. to be, where it felt like a what's you know what um, Porges would probably call a challenge response, you know something like that, where you're kind of you know you're not completely right. relaxed, you're not kind of in the kind of you know looking around for social engagement and other people to help you out. You're like, all right, I'm taking care of this, but I'm not going all the way into the fight or flight you know it's, it's, right. it's kind of like a sub part right. there so that's that's one of the things i'd just like to um, get your get your take on a little bit so i've been fascinated obviously by porges and the whole polyvagal theory and i i've mm -hmm. come to it very late i only really discovered it like a year or two ago you know so um, i know it's been around mm -hmm. for a while i just wasn't moving in those circles um and i'm fascinated by the whole idea of it and how it just seems to kind of add more colors to the palette of talking about our nervous experience of the world right and um, that it's not just a mm -hmm. simple fight or flight or rest and digest that this seems right. like that this kind of old black and white model of how we respond apropos stress is just kind of missing so many bits in between. And, f and for me, regardless of kind of how anatomically um, precise it is, you know, I've, I've heard like anatomists arguing about whether or not there are actually are two branches to the parasympathetic nerve and right. nerves and right. systems and stuff like uh, vagus nerve rather, yeah. um, and um, things like that. It, it, it's explanatory power in the same way that you know, like relativity is has a lot more explanatory power than newton's gravitation is a lot more it explains why people shut down and have trouble getting back from that mm -hmm. why they go into that kind of possum state and also why um we tend to there is a stage where people get stressed out and some people will react by um isolating themselves and kind of withdrawing and some people react by kind of garnering support you know they, they naturally reach out and try and kind of get hold of somebody and that has profound implications to me but kind of the health of society as a whole, you know, when somebody withdraws and becomes depressed and even more depressed, or if they're already in a shutdown state and then you're trying to relax them, you're not really helping by giving them drugs or, you know, giving them therapies right. that bring them further into the parasympathetic. You're actually keeping them there when you do that. And so it just seems like um, in this growing era of personalized medicine and, and just understanding more of the kind of environmental genetic interactions, that there's a lot more to be explored here. What's kind of, what's your take on, um, on what he says and what relevance it has for us? Yeah, I mean, I, I think his I think his theory is genius. I mean, it's it's cited in in uh, in my paper mm. uh, as a as a basis uh, for to try to explain uh, part of this uh, this skeletal muscle contraction combined with uh, rhythmic breathing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that having I think overall understanding a continuum. Of, of different types of responses is 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 definitely the um, uh, value of of his work. Mm. Um, I think understanding too that like that there is there is ability to modulate that mm. with different tools, right? Whether whether it is breathing or skeletal muscle contraction or whatever, but his framework gives the possibility of that modulation. Yeah. Right. It gives the, the, you know, the ability to understand how that might be working or possible. And I, I definitely, I know what you're talking about when, it, you know, some neuroanatomists argue whether or not the pathways even exist. Yeah. Um, uh, but functionally there's something there. Yeah. And, and that's something that, you know, we see in 
in Sistema uh, training and practice all the time. Yeah. And so I think his theories, uh, I think, resonate with that. Yeah. Uh, what yep. we see really well. So there's something there, whether or not the anatomy is 100% correct. Uh, yeah. You know, who knows, but. Yeah. Well, it's analogous to sometimes uh, people, you know, the way that, um, you know, Vlad or Michael might just talk about tension in a very general sense, right? And it might be right. sometimes that's kind of helpful, but sometimes it's kind of a little bit lost in translation and you can go down the wrong route with it. And it's like, but, but right. what, everything they say, pretty much in my experience of training in a couple of decades, usually turns out to be true. You know, whether or not the precise way that they phrased it is actually the thing. Uh, I'll end up finding out in some physiology context or psychology context. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's pretty much what they said. And, the, and I guess you can say the same thing of like old Buddhist classics and that are now being you know, proven yeah. true by neuroscience. You know, like, oh, yeah, they were pretty much right. They didn't know the mechanism, but they were right. You know, so it's, <laughs> so it's yeah. uh, that's interesting to me. Yeah. So, and the other yeah, thing that's sorry. It, yeah. The other thing that struck yeah, me was yeah. that he's just, he's very compassionate, you know, talking to him. He just seemed extraordinarily kind and just really wanted to bring this to people to, in, mm-hmm. in a real, in the real sense of a doctor, you know, to, to, to really kind of alleviate suffering and harm, you know, that way. And I think this theory has a lot more potential to do that. And then again, I see the parallels with Sistema, you know, I feel like it could be give, brought to more people if they could be brought to a better understanding of themselves through it. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think his theory has has a lot of power to to help that process. Um, I was just listening to a, a TED talk by uh, Dolph Lundgren. Have, have you have you seen this talk? I haven't. No. So actually, one of the guys was talking about it in training last week, but I haven't seen it. No. Yeah, it's yeah. it's actually it's it's old. It's it, I think it's a few years old now, but it's an incredible. Uh, story. I, I didn't know his life story before mm. watching it. Um, but he talks about, uh, in a sense, in a sense, like he describes an actual his life in some ways as a polyvagal response. Mm. Uh, because he he talks about how, um, as a child, uh, he was pretty uh, brutally beaten by his father Hmm. uh, growing up and his response, you know, he talks about, Oh, you know, you only have kind of a few options. Right. And, you know, it's either to flee and he couldn't really flee to fight Hmm. back. He couldn't do that. He was too, too small, too young. Hmm. And then the last one, which is to freeze. Right. Shut down. And so Hmm. that's what he did. He shut down. But uh, in the process of doing that, what he didn't realize was that his body was still um, keeping that account or keeping that score, right? Yeah. It still was absorbing all that trauma mm. in that state. And what he describes later on is like, as he got older, it kind of got buried underneath everything. Mm. Uh, but it started, you know, as he got actually got more successful and, and it, his life started becoming his, you know, his own person. Uh, this stuff started coming out yeah. in very unhealthy ways, you know. And you, it's it's very analogous story to other other kind of um, tra- traumas that people have. You know, he was, you know, somewhat, you know, violent, and mm-hmm. you know, had some, you know, substance problems, a lot compulsive of you know, relationship. Yeah, sure. compul- and it was he he didn't realize it was all related to that deeper freeze kind of early trauma until he actually started, um, I believe he started meditating and going to therapy. Mm. And then all of a sudden, like his life, as soon as that stuff came out, Mm. it was like released and his life like changed. Yeah. Like entirely 180. Yeah. And so it's interesting to like, you know, it, it, that basically is like an applied polyvagal right there. You know, it's like, The body is, uh, and there's actually a book called "The Body Keeps the Score." Yeah, Bessel van der Kolk. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Good. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that all of that stuff is around polyvagal theory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think he talks about. I think actually that's how I heard about polyvagal theory. I read that book and he references polyvagal theory in it. Yes. In one chapter. Yes. I don't. I don't think it's in the first yeah. edition. Maybe in like a, a reprint or something. But it's a, That's how I found out about it. Um, I'm like, oh, what's that? That's a 
Yeah, yeah and th- exactly. this, that no, sounds brilliant. I'm yeah. definitely going to, I'll put the, the link to that TED talk on the, uh, after, I'm going to watch it first and then I'll, <laughs> I'll put the link into the show notes as well. Cause that sounds, uh, sounds great. And there's, there's definitely some value to like a really big, tough guy, you know, um, kind of yeah, admitting no, that I mean, and talking it, about yeah. those things in the same way that I'm inspired when you hear, you know, Vlad and, you know, Michael right. and people that have been there and done it, like talk about having to acknowledge your fear and, you know, that we're human and it's difficult to stay human in these situations. It's a, there's something very honest and humble about the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, absolutely. I'm being mindful of your time, pal. Thanks so much for, um, for uh, giving us the, this hour to chat. And I'd love to uh, get you back on the show at some point down the line and, and discuss either any future research you've done or more ideas you've had uh, through training and teaching. But uh, in the meantime, is there, and how do people find out about your work? Is it publicly available if they, or do they have to go to kind of like a, yeah. have to have a PubMed license to look uh, at your papers? <laughs> uh, I, I believe both papers are, freely accessible on PubMed. Okay. Yeah. Um, you can also, uh, anyone who's interested, if they have trouble finding it, they can just email me directly. Okay. Um, can email me at uh, mchin.md at gmail.com. Okay. You can contact me there. Okay. Or uh, there's also a, so I started teaching Sistema around the Nashville area, a small yeah. group right now. Great. Uh, but it's called TriStar Sistema. Okay. So uh, it's on Facebook, but if anyone uh, wants to email me there, they can uh, get me at TriStarSystema at gmail.com as well. Great. I'll, I'll stick the links to that in the show notes as well. So hopefully you'll have a, people from all over Nashville rocking your way. I said, there's yeah, one of my that, former students that's moved out that way. He's not in Nashville, but... I'm going to look him up in a minute and see if he's close enough to you because uh, he needs a group yeah. so he wants to keep training. That'd be wonderful. Great. Excellent, Mike. Well, thank you so much, Michael. That's, um, that, was, uh, that was great. That was as enlightening as I hoped it to be and more. <laughs> Fantastic, Glenn. It's been really fun and I uh, hope to uh, get back on the show at some point. We can discuss more. Yeah, defo. That's a, that's a guarantee. <laughs> All right, pal. Take Excellent. care. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about classes, workshops, and seminars at NC Sistema, please visit us online at www.ncsistema.com.